As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You are listening to Preconceived, where we examine the preconceptions that shape how we view the world and the paradigms by which we live our lives. Hey everybody, I'm Zale Mednick, and welcome to another episode of Preconceived. The concept of originalism refers to the idea that a text should be interpreted in the present day as it was intended to be understood at the time of its initial writing. Specifically in the United States, originalists generally believe that the U.S. Constitution should be interpreted today with the same conviction as it was followed when written hundreds of years ago. This brings up many questions, however. How can the ideas and laws from over 200 years ago possibly just simply be accepted today? When we live in a totally different world, there are many preconceptions here. To originalists themselves, it seems like they might actually be living according to a series of preconceived notions conjured up from the American founders. To others, the preconception might be that it's really quite strange to put so much stock into the thoughts of people who lived so long ago. And for myself and many of you listeners, Perhaps we have preconceptions about what originalism actually even means. I'm joined today by Professor Eric Siegel. Eric graduated from Emory University and from Vanderbilt Law School, where he was the research editor for the Law Review. He clerked for the Chief Justice Charles Moy Jr. for the Northern District of Georgia and Albert J. Henderson of the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals. After his clerkship, Eric worked for Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher in the U.S. Department of Justice before joining the Georgia State faculty in 91. He's the author of the books Originalism is Faith and Supreme Myths, Why the Supreme Court is Not a Court and Its Justices Are Not Judges. His articles on constitutional law have appeared in, among others, the Harvard Law Review Forum, the Stanford Law Review Online, and the UCLA Law Review, among others. His op-eds and essays have appeared in the New York Times, the LA Times, the Atlantic, Slate, Vox, Salon, and the Daily Beast, among others. He's appeared on CNN, Fox News, and MSNBC. All right. So, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. I'm really glad to be here. 
it's a it's a very apt topic i feel originalism right now i'm canadian and you just told me you were born in montreal but you've been living in the states since you were four yeah so so you have a different perspective than me. i have a warm warm spot in my heart for the great north perfect that's it that's that's what i love to hear always nice when a guest has some some connection to canada so i think it's probably more apt for the united states because that's been more more in the news and a topic that uh, maybe maybe originalism and we'll get to this is more of a theme that's centered in the states compared to some other countries in the world though potentially not all having said that it's, it's very interesting given the political climate in the state so i'm glad we can talk about this topic i like talking about all topics but especially when they're they're fairly relevant to stuff that's in the news and talked about so so grateful to have you here right i'm excited to talk about originalism or the lack thereof which is really the more appropriate way of putting it okay well we'll we'll dig into that uh, very uh, big misconception then <laughs> I think I alluded to this in the introduction, but what is the definition of originalism? What's what's the history of it? Because I think the definition I read in the introduction, admittedly, was just something I found on the internet. And I, I have some preconceived notions about what it is, but I think a lot of people don't actually know what the term encompasses. Well, in 2022 America, originalism is not an it, it's a they. It's a family of theories that are loosely connected with an idea, which I'll get to in a minute. But I think that the headline is, the big takeaway is that it's it's basically a myth. It's a cover. It's a political shield for conservative results 98% of the time. So it's, it's a political tool used by the far right to achieve their goals. Now, what they would say is originalism is the idea that when judges are asked to interpret the United States Constitution in cases where a plaintiff wants to say, The government is doing something to me, state government, federal government, whoever, but they can't because it violates the Constitution. At that moment in time, a judge, according to originalists, is supposed to say, "Okay, well, let's look at the text in question and see what its original meaning was. And we'll apply that original meaning to whatever the question is before the court. The problem is judges say they do that, but no judges actually do that. And the Supreme Court now has five self-identified originalists on it, none of whom actually decide cases in an originalist manner. And and the reason is pretty easy to explain. Originalism is about, according to to originalists, the meaning of words. What, What did the words mean at the time? But constitutional litigation isn't about that. We all agree in America, you know, when I say we all, obviously, all but the crazies agree in freedom of speech, freedom of religion, no unreasonable searches and seizures, no cruel and unusual punishments, the equal protection of the laws, due process of law, and so on. It's not what those words mean that matter because those words are very imprecise. The only thing that matters is how those words are applied to particular fact situations. So let's take guns, because as you probably know, the Supreme Court's Second Amendment decisions in America, starting with Heller up to Bruin from last term, are the ones that if you ask 100 law professors in America, what's the most originalist you know, doctrine in America? They'd say the Second Amendment, because the case of District Columbia versus Heller was full of history. The case last term was full of history. And for, for those who aren't in the States sure. who might not be familiar, what is what is the Second Amendment say? Sorry, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be abridged. Okay. We know the history. The people who founded America were came, came out of King George's tyranny. They were very afraid of this national government they were creating. 
So they wanted to make sure, if necessary, state militias could repel a totalitarian type national government. It was never about self-defense. It was never about hunting. It was never about any of those things. The court rewrote all of that history in the Heller decision. But that wasn't the point I was going to make. The point I was going to make is this. If we're asked, so that there's a case now in, in, in the state of Mississippi here, where there's a federal law banning felons from possessing guns. Very sensible law. If you've been convicted of a felony, you can't possess guns. Somebody is, some, yeah, somebody is challenging that law. The Supreme Court last term said to judges, you have to do it through history, not policy. Policy is off the table. But the problem is, if you go look for analogous laws in history at the founding in 1791, it's irrelevant because they only had muskets. I don't know what they felt about felons owning muskets. Maybe it was good. Maybe it was bad. I have no idea. But a musket could only do so much damage before 10 people would jump on you and you would lose your musket. Like, I mean, it wasn't you couldn't kill 100 people in. 10 minutes with a musket. In 2022, obviously, you can kill 1,000 people in 30 minutes with a high-powered rifle. So this idea that we care about the meaning of the Second Amendment is stupid. We don't. We care about how it applies to today's problems. And that's what the judges end up doing. They incorporate their political preferences. They just hide it in historical analysis because, as you know, I'm sure, you can, and, you, and your, your audience knows, you can bend history for almost anything. You can find almost anything you want, especially when we're talking about text that's as vague as the constitutional text in America. So the answer to your question is originalists would say originalism is looking at the original meaning of the words as they were meant when they were ratified. In America's case, that's 1791 or 1868, depending which part of the Constitution we're talking about. And you apply that meaning to today's problems. It's impossible to apply that meaning to today's problems. Judges don't actually do that. They just say they do that. That's a very thorough answer. And that gives one, I like how you, uh, my, my next question was going to be when you started answering, well, how would originalists define originalism as opposed to you? So you're saying, and we'll get into this more, that originalism is really just kind of a veil behind which a lot of potentially judges or politicians, they say, I'm an originalist in order to back up certain theories. So in that gun example, they probably, you're in your opinion, don't really believe in the specific text that was written or are giving so much credence to what was written 200 years ago. But they're saying, OK, but this actually fits. If we lean on that, that will fit with the argument that, OK, we can't be limiting guns because of that. Yeah, that, that's about right. But the big the meta problem with all of this is America's views on rights today, all rights, free speech, guns, religion, you know, all rights. Our views on rights today are completely different than how our founding fathers viewed rights. They viewed rights as limiting, as being limited by public policy. And they did not view rights as being rights that are judicially enforceable necessarily in court. They just viewed rights as kind of this agreement between the people, the legislature, the executive, to some extent the courts, that these are things the government won't do. But it was, they were always, they could be outweighed by public policy. In America today, Trump's like Trump cards, so to speak, no pun intended. But they are they are like Trump cards where you have to have a very strong governmental reason, like really strong to, to, to regulate a right. So unless felons, unless we can show with data that felons with guns cause a real problem, 
then the government can't do that kind of thing. But that's not how the founding fathers thought about rights. So the very core of originalism is hollow and false. I think I'm in line with a lot of people here where it is tough to understand originalism. And, and I imagine there are some people who maybe they legitimately do believe in originalism. And you might disagree with this. Maybe there are a few people who have convinced themselves in some way or another that, yeah, I do believe in whatever was written in the Constitution. We should be following that. I'm curious if you could try and get into the mindset of somebody who actually believes that and maybe isn't using that as as a fallback because that's just so hard for me to understand, right? Because basically you're looking at this notion that people who wrote down these this constitution hundreds of years ago, that they had it completely right and you're putting so much credence and importance into the beliefs and writings of somebody from so, so long ago. And you're kind of elevating their stature to this mystique almost that's impossible to really live up to. That's a loaded question. And I don't mean it to. But do you think there are people who truly do believe that? So when I wrote my book, Originalism is Faith, I had a lot of titles for the book that were arguably meaner <laughs> than Originalism is Faith. The reason I called it that is because I do think there are a lot of academics and some judges who sincerely believe that what a judge should do at that moment in time when a plaintiff says, stop the government from doing whatever it is the government is doing to me because it violates the Constitution, they should look to the original meaning of the Constitution. Um, and the reason I called it faith is because I'm a legal realist, which means, aside from originalism, I don't think any meta theories describe what Supreme Court judges do. They, they do what they want based on their ideologies. And they always have. This is not a partisan critique. True for liberals, Democrats, conservatives, everybody in between. They can't deal with that. So the, the biggest problem with constitutional law in America is that liberals, conservatives, moderates across the board, the real players have a hard time accepting what some of us, a subset of that group, knows to be true, which is, uh, this is the best way to explain this. So Justice, Justices Ginsburg, Marshall, Sotomayor, three people I respect incredibly. They're all really, they were all really liberal progressive people. Guess what? They voted liberal progressive 99% of the time. Alito, Thomas, Scalia, Barrett, they all vote conservative 99% of the time. And then you used to have these middle judges like Justices Anthony Kennedy and Senator O'Connor and Justice Blackman and White who voted moderate, they would switch, sometimes liberal, sometimes conservative. But guess what? Their politics were sometimes liberal and sometimes conservative. It just matches up exactly. That is a concept that people invested in the system of strong courts in this country have a hard time getting their hands around. So they, they get involved in cognitive dissonance and they say, well, we can avoid that ideology laden judicial decision-making if we anchor it to something else. And maybe we anchor it to people who wrote 200 years ago, or we anchor it to the text, or we anchor it to history, or whatever. Here's the problem, and it's insurmountable. There are two, at least two, probably three insurmountable problems. The first is our original constitution, plus the Reconstruction Amendments in 1868, which you know, ended slavery, ended racial discrimination and voting and all that, were ratified by people who were slaveholders, segregationists, and absolute sexist. Women didn't get to vote in America until 1919 as a matter of a right. So why would we ever give a lot of credence to these sexist, racist, misogynists, obviously anti-LGBTQ? Why would we do that? That's one insurmountable problem. 
A second insurmountable problem is there's nothing in 1789 to help us with drone strikes, the internet, high caliber rifles, even, even the religious diversity of America is something that would have been foreign to the people who thought about these problems. So there's just nothing really relevant back then. And that's different than when the Constitution says the president has to be 35. We may or may not like the fact that the president has to be 35 or inauguration day in America for the president is January 20th. That's in the Constitution. That's a terrible idea. Going from November to January, we saw this obviously a few years ago. We need a faster transfer of power. But those words are clear, right? We know what 35 means. We know what January 20th means. So until that law is formally changed, we follow it because it's clear. There's no ambiguity. And that's the law. Due process of law, free exercise of religion, establishment of religion, unreasonable searches and seizures, those words don't define themselves. As I said earlier, it requires the application to changing situations. The idea we would use what they thought in 1789 to tell us what equal protect, what, what unreasonable searches and seizure means is stupid. Here's the best example real quick. A lot of states in America now use lethal injections to ca carry out capital punishment. These lethal injections are torturous, barbaric, and should be outlawed. They are clearly cruel and unusual punishment, but the courts haven't held that. But whatever that case involves, the chemistry, the science, nothing in 1789 is going to help us <laughs> figure it out. So we shouldn't use that meaning because it's sexist, racist, you know, and all that stuff. And even if we could use it, which we can't, it's, I mean, shouldn't, it's usually irrelevant to everything. So again, what the justices do is they pick and choose history that supports where they want to go. And, but where they wanted to go in the case is the first thing they do. Then they justify it after the fact. Now, when I wrote my back, my book in 2018, I really believe there was a lot of good faith out there on this topic. In 2022, I think there's much less good faith. When you describe it as originalism, as faith, what do you mean by that? The way I interpreted it initially was this notion that in some way it has become like a religion for some people. And then there's this whole argument, well, how do people use religion? Do people truly believe their religion or do they use religion for political reasons? But that some people who truly do believe it, let's say, it's become like this religion the same way in a lot of religions you put so much stock into ideologies from so, so long ago into the doctrines that were written by somebody we obviously don't know. In some ways, there's a parallel here that you're relying so much on a doctrine that was written in 1789 and then it was amended later on and you didn't know these people, that there's maybe a faith religious component. That, that's how I interpreted the title initially. Sure. I'm curious how, how right. it was intended to be. So I don't know if this was a good or bad thing for me to do. Because, you know, <laughs> I just don't know. It, it means many different things. I meant it in many different ways. That's one yeah, of the reasons good. I used it. So first and foremost, there is a huge overlap in America between evangelical Christians who say they take the Bible literally. Of course, none of them really do. But they say they take the Bible literally and originalists. So yes, it, it, there is definitely a faith-based component to the idea, the fake idea, that we're going to take words literally from long ago as a matter of religious dogma. So that's part of, that's part of the reason. Another part of the reason, it, it, though, is the more sophisticated explanation in terms of the academics, who are, there are very few academic evangelicals, and there are some, but they're very few. The academics who went to Yale or Harvard or Stanford and who are smart people 
for them, I think it's a matter of faith that constitutional law has to be something other than pure ideology, which, by the way, it's not. <laughs> but they, as a matter of faith, they can't hold on to that. So they got to find something out. So, so that's the second thing. And then third, I did distinguish in the book between the well-meaning academics who I think are involved in cognitive dissonance on this topic and the pundits in America, the Fox News pundits, the religious pundits who use originalism as a symbol for something very dark, you know, very religious, very dark, very LGBTQ hostile, very pro-guns. And, and, and in that sense... It's it's bad faith in that in that sense. The, my my problem is in the four years since I wrote the book and three new justices later, all of whom self-identify as originalists. Originalism now has gotten so big in America, and is so obviously wrong and stupid that my hope for good faith is being dashed every day. So let me give you a real quick example of that. Last term, which as I'm sure most people in Canada know, the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade, you know, and, and the abortion decision. It also issued this really strong pro-gun opinion. And in both cases, the court said history, 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 originalism, originalism, originalism. And that's where all the media was, you know, those two cases. But in two other cases decided within days of those cases, the court completely changed the law of church and state in America in really negative ways without mentioning history once. History is not mentioned in two landmark cases that are decided two days away from landmark cases where the court says you have to do history. And then they don't in two, in two cases in the same week. And, and is that because the history in those cases wouldn't have lent to their arguments? Pretty, well, there was no, pretty much, yes, yes. So it's a, first of all, in the very cases they use history, they do it selectively. But, but they don't use history in most cases. And here's a great example of that. I'm sure your audience knows that America is the most free speech obsessed country in the world. I, I, not, I mean, free speech is great. No one's saying free speech isn't great. But there are some other values that come into play sometimes against free speech. And of course, free speech is not absolute. You can't perjure yourself in federal court. That's speech. But you can be put in jail for it. You can't bribe a government official. That's speech. You can be put in jail for it. Some people think hate speech should be illegal, and in many European countries it is. My point here is all of free speech doctrine in America, which is complicated, convoluted, tests and subtests and sub-subtests, none of it's originalist. None of it. Zero. Empty set. With the exception of the government is not allowed to tell a newspaper or, or somebody on the internet, you can't say what you want to say. That's called a prior restraint. That's what the parliament did to printing presses in England in 1750. And that's what the First Amendment was about. The government stopping speech from coming out before it came out. But as far as punishing speech after the fact, after the fact, even political speech, the founding fathers had no problem with that, many of them. And, and there's a long history in America, blasphemy convictions happened in the 1890s. Speaking out against religion in the 1890s, he was sent to jail. There's no originalist argument for robust free speech in America, yet we have robust free speech in America. Those originalists don't harmonize those two things, and they can't. And that, what I just said to you, is true for 25 other major areas of constitutional law in America. 
you, you brought up guns before and I've, I mean, I mean, I've got many friends who are American, but I remember having a conversation with an American friend of mine several years back and I was trying to understand the, the gun issue and why it's such a big deal in the States. And, and I've had somebody who's on the podcast who, who really did go over that and somebody who's pro gun and explained their rationale, which was, which was helpful to understand kind of a side that many of us aren't, aren't as familiar with. But my friend, when I was speaking to him, he seemed to be very pro gun because he said he was concerned about his rights, so to speak. And he was saying in the same vein of how rights are interpreted now in the states that if they tell us we can't use our guns, then that reflects that we are no longer following the Constitution. And that reflects that it's a slippery slope, so to speak, and we are going to be losing our rights. And that is the foundation of the United States. Is that something that people are truly fearful, whether they're originalists or not? Are people in the United States really so afraid that they're going to lose their rights. And I mean, it's interesting because I, that's not a loaded question because many people actually just lost their right to have an abortion. So right. yet those probably aren't the people who were previously on that side of we need to uphold the Constitution the way it was written because they're more on the leftist side. So the gun issue in America is so distorted by the shift in the national right from the NRA the National Rifle Association, in the 1970s. <clears throat> Prior to the middle, late 1970s, the NRA was a great organization devoted to gun safety and gun control. And all the NRA wanted was safe guns in America and in the hands of people who were used them safely, and so on and so forth. Then there was a shift, and the NRA became ensconced not in the gun safety business, but in the gun profits business. So the NRA is hopelessly enmeshed with the people who make money off of guns in America. And that combination has created this bizarre idea in America that no other country in the world shares, I don't think, free world, free country, that the right to own a gun is like the right to free speech. We can't have a democracy without it or the right to practice your religion. And that the right to own a gun in America is fundamental to self-defense and self-defense is fundamental to your right as human beings and so on and so forth. There are so many problems with that. First of all, there are thriving democracies all over the world where there are no gun rights. There are no thriving democracies with no free speech rights. By definition, you can't have a democracy without free speech. They're not the same thing. That is not. Yet there's this illusion that they are. Second, from 1791 to 2008 in America, 1791 to two, that's when the Second Amendment was ratified, to 2008 when the, when the, the District of Columbia versus Heller decision was decided by the Supreme Court five to four. There was no federal right to own a gun in America. <laughs> it didn't exist for all that time. So was America like this? I mean, I mean, all these people, what was America like during that time? It wasn't that different than it is today. Finally, 41 or 42 out of our 50 states have gun rights in their state constitutions, which is their right to have. Like, I, I don't agree with it, but it, that's their right. People want to have gun rights, they can have gun rights. There is no reason for a federal right to own guns because the states can protect it themselves. But mostly the idea that the founding fathers would have not allowed for reasonable gun regulation is stupid, ignorant, absurd, and historically wrong. There are all kinds of gun laws in Philadelphia and Boston in 1790 you couldn't take guns into muskets into bars and you couldn't do this and that and if you had a musket you had to maintain it a certain way and there's always been gun regulation you know why because guns should be regulated 
<laughs> it's not a, it's like not a hard thing. And, and then there's something else too. Of every constitutional law issue in America, and I mean everyone, free speech, abortion, religion, criminal defendant rights, all affirmative action, all of them, all the hot button issues. The most local is gun is the balance between gun regulation and gun safety, or gun rights and gun safety, if you will. What works in Manhattan does not work or may not work in rural Montana. What works in Baltimore, Maryland probably doesn't work in Dallas, Texas, and so on and so forth. There shouldn't be guns in Times Square, full stop. There are kids, there's Disney, take it out. Take out Disney who owns Times Square, doesn't want guns there. Should there be guns in rural Montana? Sure, they have to hunt for their dinners. You know, I know people, you know, fine. It's a local thing. The idea there's national rules about this, which there are now because of the Supreme Court, is ahistorical, anti-originalist, anti-textualist, bad policy, and just terrible. How's, how's that for unopinionated? I'm gonna, but I just, you're, I just, you're, I, I, you're allowed to be a thing. I want you to be. I mean, I mean it's glad, just so. I'm funny. glad you're. I'm glad you're standing by what by what you believe. One thing that you said that struck me before was the fact that it was the Constitution was ratified in from 1789. It was then ratified in what year was it? So well, so the original Constitution is 1789. The Bill of Rights is 17. The first ten amendments with freedom of speech, guns, all that is 1791. And then in 1868, we passed the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, ending slavery, uh, providing for equal protection and due process for all, and saying no racial discrimination in vote. So for the true originalist who who truly does believe this, it that's where it's, it's, it's probably tough for a lot of people to understand because they're putting so much stock into the founding fathers and into the Constitution, but even that was then changed many years many years later. So clearly there is the capacity for these doctrines to change. Not to mention, if you were going to follow the one from 1789 or 1791, I mean, that was... Well, it's the same constitution. I mean, let me be clear. Amendments were added, but it's the sure. same It's the same constitution. But if there's, if there's a possibility for an amendment... But see, uh, that's the problem. So you, you just hit on it. There's a perfect storm of events that have made constitutional law in America ideology all the way down. And, the, and it's not replicated in any country in world history. We have the oldest written constitution in the world governing a country. There are some older written constitutions, but not governing a country. So ours is the oldest written constitution in world in the world governing a country. And it's virtually unamendable. It takes super majorities in both Congress and the states. So after the Bill of Rights was, was added in 1791, since then, there have been 17 amendments, and, and one of those doesn't count because it was re repeal of prohibition. So there's really been 16 amendments since 1791. We don't change in America because of the Constitution. We change in America because of the Supreme Court changing its mind. In addition, the text is incredibly vague, and we our history is debatable, and we're the only country in the world, except maybe Iceland, that has a Supreme Court full of judges with life tenure. So what we've done is we violated the clearest rule of democracy that I can think of. We can debate and defend and, and, and argue about democracy in many different ways. But here's a golden rule I'm pretty sure every one of your listeners will agree with. Never, ever, no exceptions, give a government official largely unreviewable power for life. I'm going to repeat that. 
never give a government official largely unreviewable power for life. Our Supreme Court, if you can get four other judges to go along, five out of nine, those five justices have basically unreviewable power for life. That's just so dumb. And no other democracy in the world does it. And by the way, if you were on our Supreme Court, or if I were on our Supreme Court, and I had unreviewable power for life, and I care deeply about abortion or guns or free speech or religion or whatever, I, I, Justice Alito is obsessed with religion. So guess what? He writes decisions furthering religious supremacy. Justice Marshall cared tremendously about civil rights. So guess what? He issued decisions about civil rights. It, you have a government job for life with huge power. It is going to corrupt. I don't mean corrupt in the financial bribe sense. I mean, it's going to corrupt in the sense that you're going to see your preferences as the law. It's just human nature. And you and I would do the same thing. I was going to ask you if originalism is purely this United States notion or, for, or if it exists in other countries, but it sounds like you kind of answered that in the fact that most other constitutions are a lot more modern in their nature. But let me tell you a story about that, which is fascinating. I had lunch with two Brazilian law professors a few months ago, and they were very interested in originalism for one very specific reason. They couldn't figure out how anybody could be so stupid as to believe it. <laughs> My understanding is the Brazilian constitution in effect today was ratified in 1988. So, you know, in 1988, I was 30 years old. I mean, this is my, this is like my lifetime. There are people who wrote that constitution who are still alive. So we, we can find out what they meant by asking them, <laughs> you know, among other things. Um, they think it's a crock. They think the world has changed, Brazil and the world has changed so much since 1988. But they think going back to 1988 is crazy. What about going back to 1789 when there was slavery? I mean, you know, it's insane. You know, Canada has this whole living tree thing, I, I think, you know, in your, in your constitutional law. Almost no other countries take originalism seriously because it's not a serious thing. Well, I know, I, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about abortion and what some of the originalist arguments, if there were any, were used or employed in that decision about abortion and if it is mentioned in the constitution and they were able to lean on that in their arguments or what so degree of a stretch it might have been so so in 1973 the supreme court held that women had a fundamental right to end their pregnancies basically before viability and then that decision was affirmed in 1992 with a slightly different test but there was still a right to have an abortion and then last June, the Supreme Court said both of those decisions were egregiously wrong. The this first one that their predecessors in the Supreme yes, Court were, quote, Justice Alito called them egregiously wrong. The Roe versus Wade was seven to two. It wasn't five to four. It was seven to two. The second decision was basically mostly Republicans. <laughs> so right off the bat, we know something is wrong because now I I, I, I want to divulge my value. I have been pro-choice my entire life. I met my wife giving a talk to Planned Parenthood. I am a huge supporter of Planned Parenthood. And for most of my career, I've argued that the abortion decisions were wrong because there's nothing in the text or history of the Constitution to suggest that there should be a right to abortion. But that those decisions were no more wrong than hundreds of other decisions in America, striking down certain laws and statutes and things like that. So last June, the Supreme Court said, because there's nothing in the text or history of the Constitution, we're going to reverse those decisions, leave the issue of abortion to the states. 
The problem with that is our Supreme Court finds rights and limits that are not in the text of our Constitution all the time. <laughs> the court has said that adult adults in America have a right to refuse unwanted medical treatment, assuming the adult is competent. By the way, I'm a huge believer in that right. I think it's a great right. It's not in the Constitution or the Constitution. So Americans have the right to raise their children. Parents have the right to raise their children as they see fit. Okay. I have three daughters. I'm very, I want that right. It's not in the Constitution. It's not in the text. I, I could go on and on and on and on. I would argue that a woman's right to control her body and her life and her family and her, you know, very existence in terms of giving birth should be one of those rights that we should protect. All that's changed are the people on the court. Once there were people on the court who thought that right was very, was extremely important, then there were people on the court who thought it was somewhat important. Now there are six people on the court who don't think it's important at all. Uh, the most famous judge to ever not be on the Supreme Court in America is a guy named Richard Posner, and he is just the most. He's, he was he was called America's leading intellectual of the 20th century, even though he was a court of appeals judge in America. And he used to say this, and it's a question that should make your audience, I think. Think for a minute. If changing judges changes law, do we even know what law is? And in America, on our Supreme Court, changing judges changes law. Why does changing judges change law? Because in America, it's all ideology all the way down. And the originalists can scream and yell as loud as they want, but it's all a show. What's fascinating there is what you said that you you identify very clearly as pro-choice, but you acknowledge that perhaps in I'm trying to understand. So tell me if I'm yeah. interpreting yeah. right, that in Roe versus Wade, um, there wasn't really any constitutional backing so, that suggested they should have right. done that. But nonetheless, right now, the reversal of that is very, very, very much just politically based. Well, let me. so first of all, and I say this when I do a lot of radio and TV, I, I have I can't respond to that with a soundbite. I apologize. I don't have a soundbite answer to that. It's a little more complex than that. My view has always been that if I were king of the world, the Supreme Court would have much less power and do far fewer things. And we'd have much more democracy in America. Because at its core, the idea of strong constitutional law means law made by unelected, life-tenured elite lawyers, mostly from Harvard and Yale. And I'm against that. So that's why I think Roe was incorrect, just like I think a hundred other cases were incorrect, whether I agree with the result or not. So mm -hmm. there are a lot of cases. I mean, in America, there is this legal rule of one person, one vote, which is a very important rule. The Supreme Court articulated in the 1960s because what was happening was cities had become very, Detroit, Chicago, Atlanta, Boston, far more African-Americans and Blacks had moved to those cities, but they had no political power. So what those, what those states were doing was giving the political power to the white rural communities. And the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that one person, one vote. I think one person, one vote's a great rule. It's not in the constitution. <laughs> it's not in our fundamental law and there's no historical grounding for it. So it's something they made up. Now, what they made up, I like. Just like what they made up with Roe versus Wade, I personally favor. However, I don't represent America. I'm, you know, I was born in Canada, raised in New York. I'm a big city educated guy. People in Missouri and Montana and rural Georgia and I, we have very different experiences, upbringings, and values. My legalistic white upper middle class northeastern, although I've been in Atlanta for 30 years, values 
shouldn't count any more than the values of people in rural Colorado. But when the Supreme Court exercises power, it exercises the powers of elite lawyers. So my answer to you is, it's not that I think Roe was wrong. I think most of constitutional law was wrong. But if the conservatives get their cases, then I should get my cases, right? In other words, my first choice is take away most of the power. If I can't have that choice, which I can't, unfortunately, then I'm going to argue that no, gun rights are stupid and abortion rights are really important. And one person, one vote is really important. But the free speech decisions letting corporations and unions dominate our political campaigns with money are stupid. And so that's why I think Roe was wrong in that sense. But in another sense, if we're going to have gun rights, then heck, we should have abortion rights. Neither ones are protected by the Constitution. Gotcha. So so you're saying even if maybe Roe, you didn't agree, you don't agree from a legal standpoint, you also disagree with the system in general. Yes. So because you disagree with the system in general, you're saying. Yes. The way I put it to my colleagues is I, I, I don't know if I have to unilaterally disarm. My first choice is Supreme Court do much less for abortion, for guns, for free speech, for everything. Do less. I've lost that battle. Now that I've lost that battle, I don't I don't have to say, well, I'll, well, I'll accept your cases, but not mine or whatever. You know, I mean, in a perfect world, there'd be very few gun rights in America as found by the court. And there'd be very few abortion rights in America as found by the court. I would put abortion rights in the Constitution. I would I would amend the Constitution for abortion rights. In America, in reality, the Supreme Court just, I'm, can I curse on this show a little bit? Yeah, yeah. They just make shit up. They make shit up all the time. And that's all constitutional law is in America. It's, it's Supreme Court judges making shit up, liberals, moderates, and conservatives. It's a nonpartisan critique based on their own values and ideologies. You know why? Because we gave government officials unreviewable power for life, <laughs> which is really dumb. <laughs> so I would be... I would be silly to ask you to wrap this all up in a bow, so I'm not going to. But a lot of people in in the States and in the world are probably looking and wondering, okay, abortion law just got changed. What's next? How much should we be worrying? Practically, how much do you feel that this philosophy or faith or whatever you want to call it of originalism is going to continue to govern things that people really, really care about? Or can people be a little bit reassured that in reality not too much is going to change. Well, remember, originalism is not governing anything. It is a it is an after-the-fact puffery rationalization for political decisions made already made. Our current Supreme Court is unbelievably conservative. It is to the right of even conservative Americans who aren't nuts. We've loved nuts now in America. But the but but a lot we have a lot of conservatives I respect and who I might reasonably disagree with, but who aren't nuts. This Supreme Court is to the right of the average reasonable conservative in America. There are terrible things coming. So can I give one crystallized example of this? Please. So, you know, I know Canadians know America's sordid history on race. First, there was slavery. Then there was these black codes that came after the the Civil War. That was effectively slavery. Then there was segregation from 1890 to 1954. And even since 1954, institutional racism plagues America. So what do universities and colleges do when they want to have diverse classes of whites, blacks, Hispanics, Native Americans, et cetera? That's a hard question. And I've wrestled with it my entire career because I've been on admissions committees. I've been on recruitment committees. 
And I, I, I happen to think teaching in a law school in downtown Atlanta, Georgia, two blocks from a hotel that went to the Supreme Court in 1964 when I was six years old, saying no blacks here. We don't want to take blacks here. Supreme Court said you can't do that. But that was 1964. That's like my lifetime. Right. So how do we make up for all that? One way is to use racial preferences in, in, in admissions to our universities. And then there are other arguments that's a bad idea in the long run. And, and, I, and, I, and we can reasonably disagree on affirmative action. But it should be an issue for the people. It should be an issue for the Board of Regents of my state. It should be an issue for the people of California, whatever. And 10 states out of 50 have made affirmative action illegal. So when the people don't like affirmative action, they can make it illegal. We don't need the Supreme Court to weigh in on this. It's not a question resolved by the Constitution, because obviously the people who wrote the 14th Amendment in 1868 didn't know there was going to be 90 years of segregation. They didn't know that. They thought so. Yet next June, next June, all six conservatives on the court are going to vote to end affirmative action in America. And originalism does not support that in any way. And they're not going to use originalism to do it because they can't. That's a terrible thing, not because I'm wedded to affirmative action, although I think it's on balance a good thing. That's not the reason. Because they shouldn't decide. <laughs> My university should decide, or the people of Georgia should decide if they don't want their state-funded universities. Not six lawyers in Washington, <laughs> but they're going to decide it for the whole country. That degree of conservatism is embedded in our Supreme Court for a very long time because of life tenure. And yes, Canada and other Western democracies should be very afraid of what America is going to look like between now and 10 years from now. Not just because of Donald Trump, not just because of the governor of Florida, who's kind of Trump with brains, because our Supreme Court doesn't seem to recognize any of these dangers and is, is helping those far right groups succeed. And, I, and we're terrified. Well, that's a pretty positive note to end on. Sorry, I apologize. So I have a nickname. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. No, no, wait a minute. I have a nickname. I have a nickname it, 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 on all honest. my podcasts and radio shows, Dr. Doom and Gloom. And I'm like, I'm just trying to tell it as it is. But they I, I appreciate that. And I'm being completely sarcastic because I like when guests come on the show and they stand behind what, they, what they're saying. And you're not watering it down. And I think you've given an extremely accurate view of what originalism is, what people believe it is who believe in originalism and what you believe originalism is and how parts, how a lot of it, it sounds like, is misconceived by people who probably even are originalists. I, I thank you for that. I think that's right. But I want to be really clear. Originalism isn't the problem. Originalism is a tool before the Constitution was ratified, when it was being debated. So, you know, it hadn't yet been the law in America. There were people who were fighting about whether to ratify it or not. And there was a, a guy who wrote under the pen name Brutus. And Brutus did not want the Constitution ratified. So he wrote a series of essays in New York and other places to convince the people, don't vote for this, he said. Terrible idea. And he had a lot of reasons. You know what is, but his one of his main reasons, if not the main reason, was this new constitution contemplates a role for judges that is insane. It gives them too much power. It's going to make them way too important in a country that that and and they're going to use that power in nefarious and bad ways. And he said, people who are given a job description like this, which is life tenure plus power, will eventually see themselves as free from all constraints including the constraint of heaven itself. He was right. <laughs> and he was writing in 1790. I'm sorry, 1788. 
He was right. That's the problem. It's not originally. It is the structural makeup of our highest court, which is unlike any highest court in the history of the world. One thing you've done is you've made it a little bit more understandable in a sense to people who look at it and say, how could somebody believe in originalism? Yeah. A lot of what you're a lot of what you're saying is, well, most people probably actually don't believe in originalism and they're using it as a way to pad their arguments or they've deluded themselves into believing it in order to pad their arguments. And that might make originalism a little bit easier for people to understand how somebody could think that. Yeah, it's a political tool. It's a slogan. Professor Eric Siegel, thank you so much. It's a fascinating topic, and I appreciate your candor and that you're very clear in articulating your your arguments and your thesis from the book and just giving us some insight for our American listeners and our Canadian listeners and our international listeners into into what's going on in the states, which 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 is which is scary. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, by the way, one last thought. Yeah, you Canada has a tremendous amount of guns, and yet. Almost no gun, as far as I can tell, very little gun violence. Yeah. Congratulations. Oh. Send some of that down here, okay? <laughs> I'd say thank you, but I've got nothing to do with it. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel fortunate to uh, to live in Canada. Eric, where can people learn more about you and more about more about your books? So thanks for that. I, I blog at a place called Dorf on Law, and I probably blog once every week and a half. I have a podcast called Supreme Myths, and I've been very lucky to have most of the superstar constitutional law people in America on that podcast and 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 most of the conservatives i've been very i tried very hard to get people who disagree with me on that podcast because talking to my friends is boring talking to people who disagree with me is fun so supreme Myths is my pod and if you want to learn more about the real problem with the supreme court of america my first book supreme myths why the supreme court is not a court and it's justices are not judges is the place to go because our supreme court is actually not even a court we call it a court, but it's not a court. And that's the real problem. Perfect. Well, I will put that in the episode notes. I encourage people to take a listen and to read your book. And I'm so grateful you spent this time with me. Thank you, Professor Eric Siegel, for joining me. Thanks for having me. Great questions. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening to another episode of Preconceived. Have a great day. <laughs>
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.